0: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. I am April Callahan, co-host of Dressed, alongside with Cassidy Zachary, who by now, many of our regular listeners will know, is out on maternity leave for just a little bit longer, but she will be back to the show very soon. And today, listeners, fashion historian Jessica Glasscock joins us to discuss her recently released book, Making a Spectacle, A Fashionable History of Glasses. And Jessica is a lecturer in fashion history at Parsons School of Design in New York City and was also a researcher at the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute for well over a decade. And I do believe that this particular subject is near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, because as very young children, both of us, Jessica and I, wore glasses. And she writes in the dedication of her book, which is addressed to her mother, I must say, quote, I am sorry I kept losing my glasses in second grade. In retrospect, I like to think I was just angling for multiple pairs. (laughs) I bet that many of our listeners can identify. Jessica, welcome to Dressed. We're so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I just want to say I loved, loved, loved your book. It is a tour de force of research, um, especially image research. I don't know how you found all those obscure images of eyewear, especially the really, really old ones. It must have taken a ton of time. So don't think that as a fashion historian, I didn't notice.
1: <laughs> uh, happy to discuss my research techniques if it's of interest, but it was really Uh, fun to do. It's a visual history as much as a written one, and I was really proud to make it both at the same time.
0: Yeah, and, and it works. It definitely, definitely works. And your book covers more than 750 years of the history of eyewear, starting in the 13th century. First of all, for our purposes today, how would you like to define eyewear?
1: Eyewear. Well, I have to say I did something a little squirrely with my definition in my title of the book, which is I called them eyeglasses instead of eyewear, because I talk about a lot of things that are not things that you wear, like eyeglasses and things like that. So in order to create like a bigger group, I talked about eyeglasses. And my definition would be just any lenses that are used to augment uh, your vision, correct or augment but i think it's interesting that we're getting into a place where augmenting
0: is is more the order of the day well would you tell us about some of the earliest examples of eyeglasses that you discuss in the book and who were some of the early adopters
1: well the earliest earliest example would have been the single lens uh that would be used to magnify text the history of reading and the history of eyeglasses are very deeply intertwined. And so first you have the lens and then you have the rivet spectacles, which were two lenses with a rivet at the center, which suggests a certain kind of adjustability that meant it was probably being used by more than one person for this same task, which was reading Uh, and to correct farsightedness, typically the kind that comes from age. And so that means that the users, the early adopters, as you say, were typically people who were clerics of one kind or another, people who were in communities of faith, who were reading and writing and illuminating manuscripts, but also people who were engaged in uh, accounting, bookkeeping. Anyone who had to read and write would have been a great user, but also people who were doing fine mechanical work. So as things like the making of armaments, became a trade, a profession that one could live long enough and get old enough to be farsighted, you know, that would be a great candidate for eyewear. And I I think it really must have been such a life changer, because if you were a monk whose career was about writing down these sort of words of faith, these words of culture, these words of history, you know, your career could end at... 40, 45 because of the circle of life, baby, your eyes get old. And so this really changed everything. There's less documentation about women users of early eyewear. And certainly visual documentation wasn't something I found a lot of, but I believe I just believe that, of course, there were women who were reading and writing, especially in religious communities, women who were abbesses and things like that. It was a typical career arc for women of means in the medieval era and also women who were makers of various kinds of things like lace. Uh, I can't imagine that eyewear and eyeglasses didn't come into play for them as well, but I didn't find any pictures.
0: Yes, and I was actually going to specifically ask you about that. So you already got to my next question for you. (laughs) But this does seem to have shifted a bit once we hit the 18th century in terms of various forms of lend accoutrement being used to enhance sight for both genders, and um, some of them are quite wild and wonderful, and I'm hoping we can speak a little bit about quizzing glasses, scissor glasses, and lorgnettes, and might you give our listeners a brief description of each, and also to what end were they used? Sure, so
1: quizzing glasses, probably the oldest one, and they were actually known in the 17th century also as perspective, the perspective glass. Uh, eyewear, eyeglasses changed names a lot. That was something that I realized as I did this research. So the quizzing glass was a single lens on a handle, a handle that could be very simple, base metal, or could be quite ornate and and almost uh, jewelry-like in its presentation. Uh, scissors glasses, the same. They were really a modification, let's call it a more attenuated modification of rivet spectacles, except instead of two lenses on a short Sort of stem, if you will, attached to the rivet, it would have been longer like the handle of scissors. They also could be simple or very ornate. A scissors glasses, more typically, very ornate, I believe. And then uh, the lorgnette, which is another name changer, but the miniature lorgnette was based on the technology that went into the telescope which emerged as a technology in the early 17th century and was quickly adapted to these more popular uses. And so it was essentially a miniature telescope used as a spyglass, very typically at events like the ballet, the opera, but also anything that happens in a big room where you want to see across that room. And all of these items specifically were very performative. In their uses it was all about the flourish the expression of using them of using these like implements of enlightenment because i think that's what they were and that's what made them popular in a way that these earlier versions that were more associated with clerical academic communities instead you have something that's in the social world and that shows the engagement of especially french and british court societies, upper middle class societies, with enlightenment itself. The idea of, you know, that, and so you have the same period when people are engaging with all different kinds of scientific experimentation as amateurs, as lovers, as people who are simply interested. Eyewear materializes those ideas. Or eyeglasses. I guess you're not wearing any of these. They're eyeglasses. (laughs)
0: of my favorite eyeglasses that you also touch on the book have to be the jealousy glass. And also you include this image of this amazing opera glass fan in the book. Would you speak a little bit about those as well?
1: Uh, Yes, everybody loves the jealousy glass. It's neat. It's a neat thing. So the jealousy glass is more scientifically termed the polemoscope, And the polemoscope was introduced into Court Circle's by uh, a de Bray, Stephen Demainbray, Bray, who was the court scientist to George III. And he would demonstrate this polemoscope, which was a multi lensed spyglass-looking, presenting, spyglass-presenting, we'll say, implement. But in fact, it had an angled lens within that allowed the person looking to see behind them rather than ahead of them. It's so wonderful. It's so good. Right. And so it it obviously lent itself to these, you know, dangerous liaison inflected social situations of court life that you could pretend to be looking at the opera, but instead be seeing if you know, somebody's hair was a disaster, and so it was adapted by Madame de Pompadour, court mistresses of various kinds. It was it was a delightful little tool for the social world, and it really it it traces that arc really nicely from Enlightenment implement to society tool. So miniature lorgnettes really were quite diminutive, and so they could be secreted into things. And when I say secreted it's not like you were hiding the idea that you needed vision augmentation. As I said, these things were all very performative. You wanted people to see you using these accessories. They were very glamorous. They were very elegant. But miniature lorgnettes could be made very small and could be integrated into other pieces. So you could have the, you know, a sort of pendant that would have a pillbox or some kind of other you know, hanging thing that doubled as a miniature lorgnette. And so one of my favorite pieces, and it is one of my favorite pieces in the book as well, is a Chinese for the Western market fan that has a lorgnette in the very tip, the very handle of the fan. And so you could have the fan and be playing with it and expressing the language of the fan, presumably, because it was a huge element of French court culture in the late 18th century. But then you could close it, turn it up on its end and look through the lorgnette to see whatever it is that you wanted to see.
0: I, I have never seen anything like that before. And it was mind-boggling. It's so great. It's so smart. It's so wonderful. And kind of like just encapsulates that whole social scene, like like you were just saying earlier.
1: Absolutely. And there was another version that I was not able to find an image of, but I was very intrigued with where the miniature lorgnette was made of the two lenses at either end of the tips of the fan and you would close the fan to create the the narrow tube of the miniature lorgnette and be able to look through the closed fan at the top. And uh, I believe Marie Antoinette had a miniature lorgnette fan with the one at the the very base of the handle with a lot of diamonds on it, but I couldn't find a picture of that either. I was I was devastated, but
0: <laughs> we have a size the image hunt sometimes sometimes ends in frustration yes okay so th- at this point we have really been talking about various types of eyeglasses that don't have temples right so when do we start to see temples being attached to glasses that were worn on the face
1: i mean temples is it's the most obvious thing right and yet it takes a very long time in the story of eyeglasses to get side pieces, arms, or temples, as as they're all called. Part of the reason for that is that the earliest eyeglasses were readers, which is to say they weren't worn all the time, right? You only need your readers when you're reading. And so I think temples weren't immediately necessary uh, until you start to have glasses for nearsighted correction. And then it starts to make more sense. You're gonna be wearing those glasses a lot more, but it still took a long time. One of the earliest pairs of glasses that I show in the book for uh, nearsightedness actually have cords on them. So they're literally tied around the ears and you can see how they're tied on like that. Temples were likely invented around the 1720s. I don't have an inventor name. I actually didn't do a lot of that in the book because my as I started to research these histories of eyewear and eyeglasses, I realized that often people were working on the same problem at the same time. And it was hard to pin down who solved that problem. But I say 1720s, for temples because that is when Edwin Scarlett, who was an optometrist in the London area, starts advertising glasses with temples. The temples that he developed, there were uh, spiraling rings at the end. There could also just be a simple round ring at the end, or the temples could be designed to sort of go up above the ears but would have been secreted in a gentleman's wig, typically. So that was also an element that helped to secure glasses sometimes, is these temples that would be hidden up inside a gentleman's wig. The ring and the spiral temples were a little gentler on the side of the head, which may sort of help articulate the downside of temples, is if you can imagine a piece of metal squeezing either side of your head, you're not going to necessarily wear that for a long time either. Temples were then developed really nicely over the course of the 18th century and and refined into all sorts of different shapes. But it is around the 1720s that you first start to see them and they come into wider use.
0: I also loved this bit in your book when you say, quote, I'm quoting you, a joke of the optical trade in the 18th century was that a banker, a lawyer, a judge, or an other man of letters could add $5 an hour to his wages with the purchase of a pair of spectacles. <laughs> so do you have any thoughts on the wearing of glasses as medical necessity versus social performance, which which we were have already spoken a little bit about, but like, how was that perceived? Medical necessity versus social performance.
1: It's a fascinating part of the story that I don't know if I realized was going to be such a big part of the story when I started doing the research for the book. But one thing I quickly realized, especially with fashionable eyewear and eyeglasses and women's access to them, let's say, is that eyeglasses were very much associated in some cases with being aged and enfeebled. And that was a negative of wearing eyeglasses, especially for women, but sometimes for men. So when you talk about eyewear for someone who's a banker, a lawyer, you know, sort of in a learned profession, in a sense, age is no detriment. And then there is the idea that you're sort of engaged with the solution to this problem of of your age, that you need glasses, but you get glasses because That's what a smart person would do. And I think that it also then, there's a persona that is associated with glasses. And this goes all the way back to the very early images that I use in the book of people who are coming from the space of the monastery or accounting or sales, also, again, sort of bookkeeping as an aspect. Those are all sort of clever people. And so, glasses, their first big narrative story, I think, is intelligence. And taking that on is why you can add $5 an hour to your fees. It's like, look how smart (laughs) I am. I have glasses. You know, (laughs) I must be smart. Uh, At the same time, there's a downside. You know, there's this sense of like, you need glasses.
0: Right. And also too, at the same time, if you didn't need them and you were wearing them, that's another bit of that social performance.
1: Yes. And that kind of, uh, I guess I would say it, it becomes very attached at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, to men who I would describe as proto dandies or aging macaronis. You know, macaronis are are predate to the the dandies, and then and then dandies are early 19th century. There's an association with. That group using, especially late 18th century, the scissors glasses specifically, and then early 19th century, the quizzing glass. And there's a component of performance, it's already recognized that we've discussed, but there's also a component of pretension, I guess, unearned pretension perhaps, that becomes associated with these handheld eyeglasses. And there is a slow process. I don't think it's immediate, but there's a process of first a sort of satiric eye turned onto these men who are using eyeglasses in this way that is so performative. And I don't even know if it's about their needing or not needing the glasses. It's about their presumption of performance, I think. And then over the course of that time, it becomes associated with an effeminacy The very fashionability that had helped promote 18th century eyeglasses that were jeweled and gorgeous and novel and very, you know, needful little things becomes not an arena in which men are as allowed to play.
0: Especially moving into the 19th century.
1: Absolutely. Because we're entering the phase of sobriety in men's dress and we're entering a phase of separate spheres where these values that are expressed by the performance are are no longer ma- as masculine values.
0: Well, I'm really glad you once again mentioned a little bejeweled and just gorgeous, gorgeous items from the 18th century, because I would love to know more about the wearing of eyeglasses as jewelry, because you give some pretty spectacular examples in the book.
1: I mean, they're just delicious and they're hard to resist, but I think also... You know, I mean, when I began the book and was learning, because I I, I was not an expert on eyeglasses when I started this process. I really dove in and just made it like a massive research project. But one of the first things I found out was that the earliest eyeglasses were made of barrel crystal. And barrel crystal is a, a precious stone. You know, when it's green, it's an emerald. And when it's clear, it can be your eyewear. And so I was right away like, oh, well, I can see why gentlemen, you know, in the 15th century are holding up their glasses next to their face in their print. It's like, it was expensive. It was nice. It was chic. And then that stays with eyewear, I think, through the whole history. I think the best eyewear has some components of of fine jewelry to it, uh of various tastes. Uh and then you see it bejeweled in the 18th century, lots of decorative elements, but in the 19th century especially with women's use of eyeglasses you see these things that are sort of functioning as pendants so they are both a piece of a literal piece of jewelry that secreted within it has the eyeglasses that this woman needs to to navigate reading and writing
0: yeah and there's some really gorgeous portraits painted portraits featuring those pieces of jewelry that you've included in the book so those are those are quite staggering
1: Thank you. Those were, I was so excited to find there's one beautiful wedding portrait, a Dutch woman's wedding portrait. And I, and in her lap, she has this beautiful sort of jeweled pendant piece and the eyeglasses are open. And that blew my mind because really a lot of women are not posing with eyewear, even if one assumes they may have had use for it. And it was so lovely. This woman clearly wanted to identify herself as someone who wore eyeglasses and who needed eyeglasses so much so that it's included in probably, you know, her most iconic self-image that 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 she's ever going to create. And she made that choice. She went in and sat and everything is sort of, it's this very composed and luscious, luscious portrait. Uh, and her little glasses are open in her lap. Here they are. It's very sweet.
0: <laughs> so we, we, we start to see fine jewelers jumping into this market of optometry. Who were some of the premier jewelry companies that were creating fine eyewear? And like, what was the relationship with the optometrists at that time? That is interesting and
1: becomes more fraught. Over time. But in the 19th century, I think you have significant overlap with the skill set of optometrists and jewelers who are both going to be capable of this sort of precise and fine fitted work and grinding and shining and all of these aspects. There's an overlap of the skill set. William Beecher, uh, who was a jeweler in the mid 19th century, goes on to become one of the founders of American optical. So that tells you part of the story right there. The skill set is both there. You would also have jewelers, because they're trusted in this way, getting into a bespoke business for eyewear before they even start eyewear departments. So you can find Cartier eyewear uh, really getting into the 1870s. You start to see examples of these pieces that they were making because they were trusted by their clientele. And there might be a collaboration with an optometrist. They might've had someone on site, but they were also sort of trusted with the work. And if the work was for a simple pair of readers, there's not really a requirement that an optometrist participate in the making of a pair of readers. Although optometrists might tell you differently uh, because they're protecting their work. But uh, Cartier opens their eyewear department in 1887, which gives you a sense of how important it was to their work. Then leaping forward in the 1920s is when you start to have uh, legal regulation that requires optometrists to be on site wherever eyeglasses are sold. And that starts to make a little bit of a different business. It makes a difference in the business and it's about classifying eyeglasses as medical objects rather than as fashionable objects. And I think that tension between those two roles continues in the history of eyeglasses as we go forward but in the 19th century I think it was much more collaborative if you will because it was a much smaller market in a lot of ways that the people who could afford that kind of eyewear eyewear from Cartier it's it's a small group it's a small group
0: right right And, and Lalique too at one point was doing eyewear as well right
1: Lalique was doing eyewear. I mean, any fine jeweler would have participated in that market at the request of uh, clients. So someone you could have gone in and said, I'm looking for this kind of chain and here's my glasses that I need to put on it. And they would put it together for you. So that was an aspect as well. And then opera glasses was a huge business for all of the fine jewelers as well.
0: Okay, so we're right at the turn of the century now and point of our discussion, and we also see a couple of what would now probably be dubbed kind of quirky types of eyeglasses come into fashion, and I say fashion specifically. Would you speak a little bit about the Pince Nez and also the monocle and some of their adopters? Well, the Pince Nez
1: was actually, I mean, it, it seems quirky to us in part because it does not have temples you know so it doesn't look like eyewear that would be as functional as the eyewear we typically use now but in fact the pince-nez was very functional eyewear and very widely worn it was unisex which is intriguing because we can maybe circle back and talk about how women wore or did not wear eyeglasses in the 19th century but the pince-nez was widely worn It was a middle-class style of eyewear. It was fairly universal. It had many different shapes and materials associated with it. You could do a Pince-Nez with horn. You could do a Pince-Nez as rimless. You could do a Pince-Nez wire-rimmed, all these various ways. And the Pince-Nez was also intriguing because it expressed the the growing technical proficiency that was being expressed in the making of eyewear and eyeglasses. Lenses could be ground much thinner and lighter than previously. Between the 18th century and the 19th century, you just have tremendous industrialization and perfection of the making of eyewear. That also meant that the sort of clip, the gripping element that would, the, the pinch in the pince-nez, was very well made, very effective, very light. They had all sorts of pads, corks, adjustable bridges, actually worked really well, which is why it became so widely worn. I think the ness is a great example of something that became so universal that it simply becomes very closely attached to a specific time and place. And then when it went out, it becomes associated with only people who are from that time and place. But in its time and place, it's amazing. Everyone Pince nez is worn by suffragettes, who are women who would not be bothered by the idea of appearing in glasses. Of course, you wear glasses. You're a smart woman. Uh, it's worn by my one of my favorite pictures in the whole book is a Swedish anarchist whose mugshot features him wearing Pince nez. He's <laughs> oh my god, just what a babe. I mean, he's in the book because he's a babe. I'm not gonna lie, I was like hottest mugshot. So <laughs> He's got a pince-nez on and I put him next to Theodore Roosevelt, who, who wore, who's so associated with the pince-nez, his pince-nez is on Mount Rushmore. I love that. So the pince-nez is only quirky to us. It was not at all quirky in its period of popularity. Meanwhile, the monocle was always quirky, no doubt about it, and, and cultivated for that very reason. It's kind of born from the quizzing glass and in a lot of ways is very closely related to the quizzing glass. In fact, in some of my reading, uh, I believe it was Richard Corson, who's the great accessories historian, just has done everything. He's wonderful. He talked about 1806 as a date of origin, but then he talked about the mo- this monocle that he was talking about having a handle. And I was like, not to correct you, Richard but if it has a handle, it's not a monocle. So 1806, you've got a version of the quizzing glass. Around the 1840s, you have the use of the term monocle coming in, but it's really in the 1870s and the 1880s that the monocle becomes a stage prop to represent like a certain... I think the phrase I use in the book, if you'll pardon me, is a certain constipated Britishness (laughs) on the stage. So it it comes from there. So it's already kind of this, uh, let's say, a, a very laden prop in the 1870s and 1880s. And then the painter Whistler becomes really well known for his wearing of the monocle and his self-presentation in the monocle is very dandiacal, I would say. I would say that he is sort of looking through his monocle in the same way that the dandy of the early 19th century looked through his quizzing glass. And so that's an aspect of the story as well. So he's picking up on the staginess that exists, bringing it into his public persona, and then that monocle starts to be adapted by young women, fashionable young women who are, in a sense, also embracing this sort of dandy's role of dispassionate looking and also kind of a forceful disregard for the requirement that they be beautiful. Because monocles are very silly in a lot of ways. They're they're not really useful if you're fixing your vision. Optometrists hated monocles. They were like, this is This is not working. This is not fixing your problem. Also, you had to scrunch your eye around the monocle, the the muscles around that. You basically kind of have to squint to hold the monocle in place, which a couple of fashionable commenters noticed did not make ladies look any prettier. But I think that was part of the point. There was a denial of that kind of prettiness and instead an embrace of the privilege of looking. The privilege of the gaze itself. And also it's hijacking an element of the men's wardrobe, which women were conscious of doing around 1903, when you first start to see a sort of fashionable discussion of like, women are wearing monocles. It's a thing, apparently. And then that goes into 1920, when WWD reports of women at the races, they're reporting from Paris, women at the races are wearing monocles and long slender jackets and trousers and carrying canes. And it's appalling. It's just awful. Well, I mean, they didn't say appalling, but they were not pleased. And they were like, it doesn't strike a very good line. It's very masculine. And the thing that I think we realized in retrospect is that that was the point. And it was expressive of a moment of women sort of adapting these elements of men's wear wardrobe And then by the 1920s, it's also very strongly associated with a visible lesbian community in Paris. And so the monocle is a great example of a piece of eyewear or an eyeglass that accrues all these different stories to it over time to become a piece of instant character. And that's what makes it like a turning point, I think, in this story where eyewear starts to turn towards fashion and is less, is, it, it, fashion is as important an element as function, I think, once you get to the monocle.
0: Jessica, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion of eyeglasses and eyewear. And don't worry, listeners, there is indeed a part two. Later this week, our conversation turns to sunglasses and other forms of tinted eyewear. So please tune into that summertime fun on Thursday. That does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider the role of eyeglasses and eyewear in your outfit of the day next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to reach out, you can do so via our email, which is dress at iheartmedia.com. Or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed which is where we post images for each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and we will be back with more from Jessica on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.